invite you to open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, as we continue in this magnificent chapter, we'll be reading verse... I'm going to start, actually, I'm going to start... I'm going to start at verse 26. That's not going to be up there, okay? So uh, if you have your Bible or your phone, whatever, uh, you'll want to be there, and then it'll pick it up up there. But I want us to get a bit of the context. As you're turning there, just want to welcome back our college students. I see some of you are back for, from, uh, spring, for Thanksgiving, and it's good to have you back here with us again. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to begin work, reading at verse 26. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, now as we come to this precious word, we need your spirit, for we are slow to learn, slow to believe, and yet we want to believe. We want to believe this in a way that drives away our fears and roots out our doubts, fills our life with joy and peace in believing. And so, Lord, please do not leave us lethargic or asleep to these things, but wake us up and and thrill us again, strengthen our faith, whatever the circumstance of our life, to be able to believe and trust and know these things and to have the joy and peace that come from them, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1780, during the American War of Independence, a British soldier by the name of Major John Andre was captured by American forces 
and sentenced to death as a spy. And he was a spy. He was 31 years old, extremely talented young man, fluent in five languages and respected as a poet. He'd been raised in the church, Church of England, but he'd rebelled in his adult uh, years and he'd uh, walked away thinking he had no need um, for the gospel. His arrest, understandably, had a profound impact on him. And a few days before his death, he wrote a poem, his last poem, entitled Hiding Place. And it's, a, it's his testimony. It's the story of his conversion in prison days before his execution. This is what he wrote. Hail, sovereign love that first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail, matchless, free, eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high, despised the notion of his grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light, I madly ran the sinful race secure without a hiding place. And thus the eternal counsel ran, Almighty love arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew. In other words, he ran to start counting all the good things he'd done in his life. But justice cried with frowning face, This mountain is no hiding place. Ere long, a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy's angel form appeared. She led me on with placid pace to Jesus as my hiding place. Should storms of sevenfold thunder roll and shake the globe from pole to pole, no flaming bolt will daunt my face, for Jesus is my hiding place. On him almighty vengeance fell that would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for his chosen race and thus became their hiding place. A few more rolling suns at most will land me on fair Canaan's coast, where I shall sing the song of grace and see my glorious hiding place. That's a wonderful testimony. A sinner saved by beautiful, sovereign grace. And it's, it's all of our story if we're Christians. Uh, we were every one of us without God and without hope until the gospel appeared and God brought us to true faith in Jesus Christ, where we acknowledge that we are hopeless and helpless before the thundering of the law and that Jesus alone is our hiding place. Well, here in Romans chapter 8, Paul is just calling us to exalt in Christ as our refuge, as our salvation, as he's been laying out the gospel ever since chapter 3, uh, 21. And uh, coming really now to a crescendo here at the end of chapter 8. In chapter 9, he's going to start a new section and start talking about God's purpose and plan for uh, the Jewish nation and for the Gentiles and how that all works. But, but here he's coming to the end of the great, the center of the book of Romans and this great gospel theme he's been on. And he, um, 
just magnifies the triumph of the gospel for sinners with five doubt-destroying, death-defying questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 31. If God has given us His very own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Verse 32. Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? Verse 33. Since it is God who justifies, who is he that condemns? Verse 34. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. John Stott writes that the apostle hurls these questions out into space, as it were, defiantly, triumphantly, challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them and deny the truth contained in them. But there is no answer, for nobody and nothing can harm the redeemed people of God. And that's what Paul exalts in this morning and calls us to do the same. We're going to be looking at the first two questions found in verses 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if God has graciously given us His own Son, sparing Him not, will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Let's begin with the first fundamental question, if God be for us, who can be against us? It's structured, of course, as a conditional clause, if, then, if, then, and it's the most critical, essential conditional clause in the human language, right? This is the question that absolutely defines your life and determines your destiny, everything, and that is not hyperbole, everything hinges on this, is God for you or against you? It's the most fundamental question of our existence. Is God for you or is God against you? And if God is against you, in other words, if, if, if you have not fled to Christ as your hiding place, if you're, if you're counting on your good works, hoping that that's going to be able to answer the, the demands of God's holy law, well, you just need to stop and think and listen to the word. If God is against you, then you don't have a hiding place. If you're not in Christ, then, then God is still, in that sense, opposed to you, and nothing is going to be able to save you or, or help you. No, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, no, no, no power. When you stand before God on the last day and then the books are opened and every idle word you've spoken and every sinful thought and, and word that's come from your mouth, every act that, that fell short of the glory of God and in every way that your life failed to move into, right, obedience and worship and honor and praise to God, when that is all opened and, and, and revealed and, and the truth is there and you're judged on the basis of it, if, if God is against you, nothing is going to be able to prevent you from going to hell. Nothing. Not if God and His holy law condemns you. If, if God condemns you, who is he that justifies? There, there isn't anyone. No angel. No one at all. But praise be to God, friends, this is the day of grace. 
This is, this is a day when the gospel is being proclaimed, and the gospel is for sinners who are, by nature, enemies of God. Paul tells that, it says that in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are, by nature, right, children of wrath, enemies of God. We, we don't, by nature, we do not love Him, we don't desire Him, we don't want to serve Him, we're fond of the darkness more than the light. But God, in His grace, reaches out and calls out to this world to come and, and, and to be saved to find in Christ that, that hiding place. And the wonder of the gospel, of course, is that God in Jesus has made a way for sinners who are opposed to God to be friends of God, to be reconciled to God. And Paul says that for those who then have come to faith in Jesus Christ, have fled to Him, so that Jesus is my righteousness, I'm, Jesus is my only hope, my only plea, what Jesus has done for me. Then Paul says, if that is true of you, well then, well, God is for you in Christ. And if God is for you, well, who can be against you? You see, that changes everything. If God be for us, nothing ultimately can be against us. Not truly. We, we just read, verse 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Well, if God is at work to do that, who's going to oppose God? Some people have the idea that God and the devil are sort of in a, in a, in a tangle here and that, that God wins on some days and the devil wins on other days and that is just fundamentally not true. God wins every single day. At every moment of every day. There's not, a, there's not a single instance where the devil can stand and say, Aha, I got you on this one. He thought that when he put the Son of God to death on the cross. And God in that very instant was triumphing over the forces of hell. And so if God is for us, what shall we, what shall we say in response to, to this? And Paul has just outlined all the ways that God is for us, right? He he, he loved us before the foundation of the earth, and then He predestined us to be saved. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. God is for us in these sovereign acts of redemption, everyone certain and sure, because God Himself has purposed it, and God Himself has accomplished it in Jesus Christ. And God now promises it. So if, if God before you in those things, very tangible, practical, incredible, redemptive ways. Well, who, who can be against that? Who's going to say to God, those you've predestined, you, you're not, you can't call that person. Or to say to God, yeah, I know you've called them, you've given them faith in Jesus Christ, but you, you're, you can't justify them. You see, there's, no, there's just no place at any, any part of that chain where anyone or the, the devil himself could step in and say, no, for this individual it doesn't work. It'll never happen. And if God is for you in those incredible sovereign ways, well then, who or what can be against you? So that, you see... But just Paul wants us just to stop and reflect and apply. You can, you can read verses you know, 28 through 30 and see the wonder of the chain of redemption. You can nod at that and you can acknowledge it's true and not get an ounce of comfort from it if you just leave it sitting on the shelf. 
But Paul doesn't want us to leave it sitting on the shelf. He just asks this very penetrating question that makes, forces us to apply it. This means that God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? I love Psalm 56, verse 9. It's, it's a, just a core confession of a, of a child of God. Psalm 56, David is wrestling. His enemies are after him, as they seem to always to be. And he's, he's weak. He's weary. Maybe you're feeling like that this morning. And yet in the middle of this psalm of David's trouble and, and his prayer, he has this wonderful confession, verse 9. This I know. This I know. God is for me. That'd be a great verse to plaster on your fridge. This I know. God is for me. The question, of course, for you this morning is, do you know that? Do you know that? It's not uncommon for believers to struggle with exactly that question. How can I be absolutely certain that God is for me? Because I, I look at the trials and it doesn't feel like God is for me. And I look at my sin and it's easy for me to believe that God would not be for me. So how can I have an invincible assurance of these things that is able to overcome the times of doubt and the times of trial? And Paul points us directly to it in verse 32. How can we know that God is for us? Well, verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? That's the gospel answer to every nagging doubt. The immutable foundation of assurance is the irrefutable fact of the cross. The immutable foundation for assurance, for comfort, for joy and peace is the irrefutable fact of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul points us to. The fact of the cross, secondly. I love that Paul does not seek to comfort us the way the world so often tries to comfort people. People are wrestling with doubt or fear, um, not sure about the relationship with God. And so often you'll hear the world say, God understands. God knows you're only human. God knows your heart. God accepts you just the way you are. And Paul, he just doesn't go there. He doesn't try to comfort us with sentimental ideas of a nice God. But what he does do is, is roots our assurance in the reality of an infinitely loving God who sacrificed his son to atone for our sin. There's nothing sentimental about it. It is just bursting with significance, with rich, glorious truth. You see, our assurance rests on the objective, historic fact of the cross of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's the beauty about being a Christian. This is not some esoteric philosophy or just some interesting theology that some guys came up with and, and tried to comfort people with. It's, just, it's, it's not that in, in the least. This, this, this goes back to a, a very real day, just like this day, 
When, when Jesus Christ, the man from Nazareth, was, was hung on a Roman cross, according to the custom of the day, just outside of the city of Jerusalem, as a his objective, historic reality. And the details of that day and that event, you see, reverberate throughout all time and through all the world and provide an immovable mountain for assurance and comfort and joy and peace. Let's just unpack these words a bit. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Notice the nature of the sacrifice. When, when Paul says he did not spare, but gave up, he's using the language of sacrifice. This would, uh, to the discerning reader, this would remind them uh, of Genesis 22, where Abraham, boys and girls, you remember the story of Abraham, where, when God called Abraham to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. And Abraham obeyed and went up the mountain and prepared the fire and laid the, 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 the altar and, and laid Isaac on the altar and took the knife and it was about, you remember that story? And Abraham, Isaac's dad, was just about ready to plunge the knife and God uh, told him to stop. And God commended Abraham that Abraham was was willing to believe and trust in God even to the point of not sparing his own son. But God spared Isaac. And God commended Abraham for giving him up. And here we see that while God spared Abraham's son from the sacrifice, he did not spare his own. He gave up his son, his only son, the Son of God was crucified. I know we've heard that a thousand times, and, and, and yet the, the, the reality and the truth of that is, is so profound. In, in truth, we can't fully understand it. There's a long-standing debate about how the manner in which we can speak of Jesus in his deity on the cross, right? We, we need to make a distinction between the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ in some way because God can't die, right? God can't die. And yet, the Bible doesn't say as Jesus went to the cross, he laid aside his deity. doesn't say that. In the same way, when he came to earth, he did not lay aside his deity. He was the God-man on earth, and he was the God-man on the cross. So that we sing with the, with the hymnist, right? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? There's, there's a way we can say that because Jesus was the God-man on the cross. Jesus was the Father's Son on the cross. And, and that stunning fact is, is the source of, of all gospel assurance for sinners. You see, what in all the world is able to wash away your sin? What in all the universe is sufficient to atone for your guilt? What can make you right with God? It's, it's, it's such a... A penetrating personal question. Micah, the prophet, asks this in chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? It's a question people often wrestle with as they face death. I'm going to stand in the presence of God. What am I going to come with? 
How shall I bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What will it take? And of course, there's not a single sacrifice that we can make. Not a single sacrifice that you could make, no matter how precious it might be. You can offer up your firstborn, as people do today. And it will not suffice. There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. There is only one sacrifice, one alone, that is able to actually truly wash away the guilt of your soul and take away the sin of the world. And that is the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross. God spared not His Son, but gave Him up for us all. There's another wonderful truth here for our assurance as stunning as it is, and that's the identity of the executioner. Who killed Jesus? Right? We could ask that. Who killed Jesus? And you could give a variety of answers to that. You could say, well, Judas certainly had a hand in it. He's the one who betrayed him, gave him up to be arrested. You could point to the Jewish religious leaders, the ones who plotted his death, falsely accused him, demanded that he be handed over to them to be crucified. You could point to Pilate and Herod. You could point to the soldiers who pounded the nails through his hands. You could point to the, the, the crowds of Jews who screamed for his death and asked for his blood to be upon them. But the most correct answer is also the most shocking, stunning answer, and that is that God the Father put His Son to death. Jesus was not a victim on the cross. Jesus was a sacrifice. God the Father did not spare His own Son. God the Father gave up His Son on the cross to be crucified. That's a fundamental fact of the cross. You don't understand the cross unless we realize that. Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Father's will. Just let your mind wrestle with the raw sacredness of that truth. In the cross, God the Father, the Father whose, whose name is love, God the Father was crushing his son. And of course, the question then is why? And there we see... The purpose. You see, God spared not his son, but gave him up for us all. That's, that's why. The, the infinite mystery of the cross is that, that God sacrificed Jesus, his own son, to atone for our sin. Isaiah talks about that again in very, such a beautiful way. Surely he, that is Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin that we have ever committed and ever will commit, it was all laid on Jesus. And he was not spared a single one of them, and he was not spared a single um, bit of the full wrath and vengeance of God, the Father, and the, the thrice holy God, right? All of the justice of God due to our sin was all poured out on Jesus for all your transgression and all your sin. 
On him, almighty vengeance fell that would have sunk a world to hell. Why would God do that? Why would the Father do that? And the answer, of course, is because he loved us. And in Christ, he had purposed to save us. In Christ, he was reconciling us to himself. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And with his stripes, Jesus' stripes, we are healed. That's why the Father crushed his son, friends. That's why the Father put Jesus on the cross to heal you, to forgive you, to wash away all the ocean of your guilt and to robe you in the beauty of Christ's righteousness. The Father did that for you. And, and this is critical to Paul's argument here in verse 32. You see, the, the, the precise point of the argument is that if God the Father was willing to crush his own precious son for your sin in this way, then we can be absolutely confident that he will do everything else that's necessary to save us. How will he not also then with him graciously give us all things? And that's the beautiful logic of the gospel. The argument is from the greater to the lesser. Paul says, if this is true, then this must be true. This, if this great thing is true, and there's no greater thing in all the world, there's nothing of greater value than the life of the Son of God, the life that God put on the cross and was poured out for us. A greater gift is not possible. You, you realize that. This isn't just a really good thing, a nice thing. It's, it is the ultimate gift that God could give to sinners. The ultimate gift that has the ultimate value in, in all the created universe. Nothing compares to this. And God did this for you. And Paul's just saying, if he gave this magnificent, majestic, stunning thing to you, the, the life of his son for your sin, well, will he not then also give you everything else with Jesus for your salvation? If he didn't spare Jesus because he loved you, do you think there's anything that's going to stand in, in the way of his love for you? Will he not work out exactly what he's promised to do? Now that he's called you and justified you in the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, will he not continue to sanctify you? Will he not one day glorify you? Isn't it true that we so often live as though our Christian life is sort of... Uh, it's just on shaky ground a little bit. We have good days, we have bad days. We, it's going well, it's not going well. And, and yet God calls us in the gospel to stand on this, this, this road of, of absolute confidence and assurance. assurance. This, the story of our life isn't about I'm doing well, I'm not doing well. The, the, the story of your life is about what God has promised in Jesus Christ and, and if he's given you Jesus on a cross for you then he's going to do everything necessary according to his own infinite wisdom and skill. He'll do everything necessary and everything good to bring you finally without fault and with great joy in the presence of Christ his Son. You cannot be lost. And notice Paul says that will he not also with Jesus give us, graciously give us all things. The gift is Jesus, isn't it? The gift is Christ given to us, Christ for us, Christ in us by the Holy Spirit. We in Jesus. 
And there in Christ, every blessing is graciously, freely given. It just all flows like an abundant river gushing out. All flows from Jesus Christ. And it's all grace, right? Will he not graciously give us all things? And that grace, friends, will be sufficient to lead us home. In that grace, he will sanctify and he will glorify. It'll be enough to lead us home. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Who could possibly stand in the way of God's purposes? Life, death, no. Angels, rulers, no. Things present, no. Things to come, not a chance. Nothing can keep you from receiving all the fruits of God's work and his love for you in Jesus Christ as a fact. Now, let's just wrap by pressing this home. I want to say first, just if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not in Christ... God is calling you today to to repent and believe. God is calling you today to realize you don't have a hiding place. Jesus is the only hiding place. There's not another one. And Christ is calling you today. Come unto me. I will give you rest. Call on the name of the Lord. You will be saved. It's, It's the promise from God, the God who gave his son, who so loved this world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's, that can be yours today by confessing your sin, by calling on the name of Jesus to be your, your righteousness, your hiding place, and devoting your life to him. Winston Churchill once said that men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing has happened. That's sadly true. Don't let that be your story today. Don't stumble over the truth and pick yourself up and brush yourself off and just move on as though nothing had happened. Christ Jesus, the one who suffered for your sin, invites you to come for life today. Secondly, let me say this. For those who profess the name of Jesus, take these words deep into your soul. If God is for you, and if you are in Christ, then you know God is for you. If God is for you, then let's just not be shaken by the trials. They're going to come. Trials will come. And there will be days of despair. But nothing, friends, can change the fact of the gospel. No matter what the future holds, the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, stands and gives us every reason in every circumstance to say, no matter what else is happening, and and, and regardless of all the things I don't understand, I I don't know why God is doing this, I, I I don't... understand his purposes, but this one thing I know, I know God is for me. And let the devil accuse and let my own flesh condemn, it doesn't matter. God is for me because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And his grace will be sufficient because he's given me his own precious son, and if he's given me Jesus, will he not also with Jesus graciously give me everything? And lead me to my eternal home. This past week, my sister-in-law, Tricia, widow of my brother Randy, she uh, sent me a text with a photo of a, of a note that she had taken. Randy had written a note in a book that he is reading, and she was just going through his books, and she found this, this note, and she forwarded it on to me. And it was a note of thanks for those who ministered the gospel into his life. And Randy wrote this. 
He says, without having this anchor to my soul, cancer would have wrecked me and my faith. Instead, it has deepened me in my trust in God. I know that I stand righteous before Him, and I do not fear the day of my death. Rather, I look forward to seeing the fulfillment of all God's promise to, promises to me as one justified, and he double underlined justified with a big exclamation point. Praise be to Him. Friend, that can be your testimony this morning not afraid to die. And whatever trials come, they just deepen my faith and confidence in God because the gospel is true every step of the way. This I know, God is for me. And nothing will separate me ever from his love. And one day I will be glorified in his presence. May that be your conviction this morning. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, forgive us for our fears and our doubts. Forgive us, oh Lord, for trying to interpret life apart from the cross. Give us spiritual wisdom as your people to read all of the things that you ordained for us, to read it all through the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ where you gave us your Son. So that we know these things in such a way that nothing can shake us. Not things present, not things to come. Because we live in the conviction that we belong to Jesus. God is for us. Father, I just pray that, that this truth would take root deep in our life and it would change how we think, how we feel, and how we live. And there would be a smile on our face and peace in our heart. There would be mercy flowing from our lips. There'd be love for you and love for others. There'd be a burden for lost people because we've received this most magnificent gift, all of grace. Father, I pray in you here this morning who have not bowed the knee to Christ and confessed their sin and their need of him. Oh God, I just pray that you'd be gracious to them today and, and draw them into the light. We'll give you all the praise. And all God's people said, amen. We're gonna stand together and sing the song that you heard at the beginning of the service. Our God will go before us. His grace will lead us home. Let's stand together and sing.
Receive the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace till Christ come again. Amen.